Today we continue our, our mini-series called Three Traps and a Dead End. Now last week we looked at trap number one where the Pharisees brought this, what they believe, this ultimate question to Jesus about the poll tax. They had set this trap for Jesus and Jesus just completely destroys that trap causing it basically to set on the Pharisees. I don't know if you've ever had mice problems at your house. But years ago, Lindley and I had some, some mouse problems at our house, and so we set some traps. Have you ever had the privilege of setting a mouse trap and having it go off on your own hand? I can guarantee you this, it will give you reason for repentance. Um, when the Pharisees set this trap about the poll tax, it actually went off on them. And instead of feeling like or realizing that they needed to repent and change because they could not trap Jesus, that He was actually who He said He was. They go off together and lick their wounds and regroup and try to figure out another way to come back and trap Him. And meanwhile, the Sadducees come on the scene. They've also created a trap to try to trap Jesus. If you'll remember... They're wanting, the religious leaders are wanting to discredit Jesus in front of the people. Because the one thing that stands between their plans of destroying Jesus and actually carrying out those plans is the opinion of the people towards Jesus. They're still amazed with Him. And so the Sadducees, who are the other primary group of religious leaders, come to set Jesus in this trap. Now the Sadducees, they differ from the Pharisees. The Sadducees don't believe there's a resurrection from the dead. We learn that from our passage today in Matthew chapter 22. We also learn about the Sadducees in Acts chapter 23 that they don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in any kind of spirits, demons. That they really differ from the Pharisees predominantly in the way that they see spiritual things and also in their perspective on what happens after you die. And so the Sadducees believe that all you're going to get from blessings and following God or curses if you don't follow God is just going to happen in this life. That there's nothing going to happen after you die. This is it. Now the Sadducees had had this standing disagreement with the Pharisees, and in Acts chapter 23, we really see how bad this disagreement is. We can look at Scripture and figure out that this disagreement exists between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and so the Sadducees come to Jesus with this question regarding the resurrection. And the reason this is their idea of a trap for Jesus is because of this standing conflict between the two religious groups, the two religious leaders. If they can get Jesus to get right in the middle of this conflict, they could use this scenario that they've already discredited the Pharisees with to give discredit to Jesus. You see, they're going to bring something to Jesus that is their best weapon to discredit someone who might believe in the resurrection. Because they've been dealing with this with the Pharisees for years. This is the thing that the Pharisees apparently have not been able to deal with, to answer, to know how to respond to. So the Sadducees bring their best possible trap, 
dealing with the resurrection to put Jesus right in the middle of a conflict so that He might not be able to answer their issue in the same way the Pharisees had been unable to answer it and therefore discredit Jesus in front of the people taking steps toward their goal of destroying Jesus. And so they bring this question to Jesus. Let's look at it together in Matthew chapter 22. Starting in verse 23. On the same day, the Pharisees got the trap set on them. They go back and lick their wounds. On the same day, some Sadducees come to him, saying that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said... Now that's a clue for you to recognize. They're now going to paraphrase a passage out of the Old Testament. This is specifically from Deuteronomy chapter 25. So they're saying, Moses said this, they're quoting out of Deuteronomy, paraphrasing this passage, and they say, if someone dies not having children, his brother is to take his wife in marriage and to raise up offspring for his brother. So the the Sadducees quote out of the Old Testament this passage about when someone is married and they don't have children and the husband dies, then the husband's brother is to marry his wife so that they can produce offspring to carry on that man's name in the tribe of Israel. And so they've quoted this passage out of Deuteronomy and then they're going to take that passage and put a little spin on it with this story, this really incredible and improbable story. Let's read the story that they say. They say, there were with us seven brothers. And the first, after marrying, he died. Don't read into that. It's not meant to be a comment on marriage. It's just the fact that after he married, he died. (laughs) And not having offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise with the second and the third until the seventh. And later, after everyone died, the wife died. Therefore, in the resurrection, which of the seven will have her as a wife because they were all married to her? Now, if you just think about this story a little bit and consider the improbability of this, it also provides a source of humor. Because you would think if your brother number four or five or six you're probably going to skip town rather than follow the law. I mean, it just doesn't seem like after that many times that number six is going to go, hey, it's going to work for me. It didn't work for the previous five, but I know I'm the guy. I mean, this is a significant problem. And then what's really funny about this question of which of the men will be married to this woman in the resurrection is assuming that any one of the seven would want to be with the woman that killed them all. I mean... They've made a huge assumption here. And I just think the whole story and the scenario is pretty comical. And uh, so they they throw out this improbable scenario to Jesus and they've made it so outlandish that it makes the idea of the resurrection look completely implausible and foolish. And so they've laid their trap. No one to this point among the Pharisees has been able to counteract this argument, this set of circumstances, this crazy story, to the point where the Sadducees look disproved. In fact, because they've been able to stand on this without any conflict, 
winning over them, they make the other side look discredited. That's their goal here. To draw Jesus in with this improbable story and get him to speak towards the issue in a way that discredits Jesus Christ. Now I want you to take one quick side glance at what they've done with Deuteronomy. Does Deuteronomy chapter 25 have anything to do with life after death? Absolutely nothing. And yet they have based the problem with the resurrection on a passage that contextually doesn't speak to life after death at all. That's not a real good method, especially going against Jesus. Just for, just for a hint, you know, you don't want to go that direction. So the Sadducees are waiting for Jesus' response. Now, the Sadducees have significant problems. And we see that here and are reminded of that fact because they are a part of a religious leadership group coming to Jesus to test Him. Pharisees have left. They're going to regroup, come back and test Him again. But the Sadducees, meanwhile, they come and they're standing in the same position of wanting to test Jesus. Not much has changed since the first time we were introduced to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 3. You recall in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees calling them a brood of vipers. Calling them to repent and demonstrate the fruit of repentance. They are unwilling to do so in chapter 3. And now as they've continued that perspective here in chapter 22, they are trying to discredit Jesus so they might destroy Him. Not much has changed. Unwilling to repent. The fact is, Jesus Christ has given them many reasons to repent along the way. He's pointed out things time and time again that they needed to change and think differently about and believe differently. Unwilling. And Jesus right here is going to give them even more reasons why they should repent. He's going to cause the trap to set back on them, giving them cause for repentance. Indicts them with three things. Verse 29. Answering, Jesus said to them, You are deceived. That first indictment is not an indictment you ever want to be guilty of. Because you see, the problem for the Sadducees here is that they believed They were right. And they had proven their rightness, though wrongly proven, using Scripture. They believed they were right while all along they were wrong. And they were unwilling to hear anything differently. Believed they are right. They were completely wrong. And they're unwilling to hear that they were wrong. They're deceived. That's not a place you want to be in. You don't want to be living in the place that you believe you're right when in fact you're wrong. And you're unwilling to hear that you're wrong. When you live in that place, it will dramatically affect how you understand the truth of God's Word. 
And that's exactly what Jesus Christ says of them in the second indictment. He says, you do not know or you do not understand the Scriptures. And the Sadducees were people who, who knew the Scriptures backwards and forwards. They knew the Old Testament. They were experts in the first five books of the Bible. They knew God's Word. But Jesus Christ says to them, you don't understand it. When you get to the place that you're so deceived and unwilling to see that you could be wrong, it will dramatically affect what you understand about God and it will alter what you once knew. It could be a skewing of what is true. That's also not a place you want to be. You don't want to get to the place in life where all that you know and think you know represents the fact that you don't understand what is true. Jesus' third indictment is that you don't understand the power of God. These guys had lost sight of what God can do because they had lost sight of what God's Word means. When you lose sight of what God's Word means and you, you cease to understand the truth of God's Word, you will miss the hope and the reality that the power of God can bring to your life. These guys who knew the Scriptures but didn't understand them, that were now deceived and unwilling to be wrong, were missing the power of God specifically in this area of the resurrection. And Jesus Christ is going to directly address the question of the resurrection. And I want you to notice how He does this. He's started with the progression of deception, not understanding the Scriptures, and not understanding the power of God. And now He's going to flip that back to the other direction in His explanation of the resurrection. He's going to deal with the power of God, the Scriptures, and the truth versus error. And it's like he's mapped out this progression. If you're deceived, there's probably a good chance you're not understanding the Scripture. If you're not understanding the Scripture, there's a good chance you're not understanding the power of God. Let me tell you, if you don't get the power of God in your life today, there's probably a a direct correlation to understanding Scriptures. If you don't see how God's power is at work in your life today and for eternity, there's a good chance that you don't understand what God has said in His Word. And if you don't understand what God has said in His Word, there's a good chance that that's leading to complete deception. See the progression He's mapped out here by going one way and then coming back to the other way so we connect how these things fit together. And notice what He says here, starting in verse 30. For in the resurrection, neither will they be married or given in marriage, but they'll be just like the angels in heaven. So Jesus here starts with explaining why the resurrection is in fact a reality on the basis of the power of God. And He explains the power of God by saying that in regard to marriage, what you're experiencing in this life on the earth will not be what you experience in eternity. What you experience in eternity will be more like what the angels have. 
Now, if you do a study of Matthew and you just look at what Matthew's done with the angels, you're going to see that Matthew's done a lot with angels. This is a topic that he has covered over and over again as far as how the angels interact, what role they play with the Savior, what, what's happening here in the end times in the angels. We're going to see a lot of that when we get to Matthew 24. The angels are definitely in relationship with one another and in relationship with Jesus Christ and the Father and the Spirit. The angels have a unique relationship to one another and Jesus is using this explanation of that marriage is not going to be like it is here, but there our relationships with each other are going to be like the angels to explain to us that the quality of our relationships in heaven are going to be of such a nature for satisfaction and joy that what we have now in terms of the best opportunity for joyful relationship with others Marriage will not even be necessary there for that level of satisfaction. And the reason that's going to be the case is because you can't understand what's going to happen there fully if you discount the power of God to take something here that we think is wonderful and make something so incredible there that we're not going to look back on what is here and wish we had that but be thankful for what we have there. In other words, we're going to be able to look back on marriage and the incredible relationship we have here and see it as preparation for a life that is going to be beyond anything we could have ever imagined and we will never long to go back we will simply say, thank you, God, for using that to prepare me for this life where the power of God has so changed relationships that what I have is far superior than anything I've ever experienced or could imagine. The power of God is going to so transform us in eternity that the greatest things of this life will seem like a faint shadow of the life to come. There is no way we can fully imagine what God has prepared for us in eternity except that we see and understand that it's God's power that's going to take what is the best of this life and so transform our experience there that we look back on this life with nothing but thankfulness that it prepared us for the next. Real life and relationship happens in the next life. The family as we know it will cease to exist because God has determined that those who trust in Jesus Christ will be a part of a more significant family. The longing that we all have in our families to experience satisfaction in the relationships that exist there is fully going to be met in the relationships that exist in the most significant family of all eternity, God's family. We're being prepared for the next life. And it's the power of God that makes this possible. Now, for those of you who have, who have raised kids, you've probably had an experience similar to this. Whenever your kid gets to that age, you know, that you would like for them to consider potty training, they don't always approach that from the most rational perspective. You get them to that age and you begin to, begin to convince them that diapers are not the best thing in the world. And those of you who have had kids, you know what they do. They all of a sudden become extremely attached to their diapers. They have no interest in anything else other than wearing their diapers and doing their business in their diapers. They don't think that losing the diaper and moving to the toilet is a good thing at all. And for a parent, that's really confusing. Because we have a totally different vantage point. 
and we're thinking to ourselves, why is it that my kid wants to do his business in his diaper when he could be free from that? This doesn't make sense. I mean, there's not a person in this room that looks at a baby sitting in a diaper, having done his or her business, and thinks, it would sure be great to be back there. I mean, no, the older we get, we fear that. I mean, that's a legitimate fear. We don't want to go back because we know there's something so much better. And what the Scripture is telling us here in the words of Jesus is there is something better waiting for us such that we'll never look back and have any regret or hope for what was. We will simply be thankful that God granted us the joy of being prepared for the greatest of all lives. Lindley and I had a fun engagement time. Her parents are here and they'd probably say there were moments of tumult and craziness, but uh, for the most part, it was a lot of fun. We had some good memories during those months. But I promise you this, here we are 19 year, almost 19 years into marriage, I never want to go back to the engagement days. You see what I, you hear what I'm saying? I don't want to go back there. I like married life. I love it. God's done so much in my life through it. And so when I hear Jesus say, there's not going to be marriage in eternity, if I don't factor in God's power, I could actually think he's ripping me off. But when I factor in the power of God, what I realize is all that I've experienced now is preparation for a relationship in the body of Christ that will be so satisfying, I'll never want to go back. It's the power of God. That's what the Sadducees were missing. When you miss the element of the power of God, it's probably because you're misunderstanding the Scriptures. And that's exactly what was going on with them. And Jesus says, concerning the resurrection, verse 31, have you not read, and we've heard that three other times, if you've been here through our study on Matthew, all three of those times when Jesus said, Have you not read? Not good. This is going to be the same. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? So Jesus Christ reveals to them how the power of God is going to do something that is beyond their imagination, far better than what they could ever hope for. And then he points them right back to the Scripture so they can see how this is biblically true. And Jesus quotes a verse of Scripture that they would well, that they would well know. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. This is the passage where God has called Moses to be his spokesperson among the Israelites and deliver them out of Egypt. And God says to Moses, 
I am the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. And if the Sadducees had understood the Scriptures that they knew so well, they would have understood that when God told Moses that He was the God of Abraham, that Abraham was alive. I think it's kind of funny to think about the idea of what's happening here when this thing unfolds. The Sadducees and Jesus are kind of in this scenario, and then I imagine the disciples are kind of just circled around Jesus or back behind watching this thing unfold. And when the Sadducees bring this question of what about the resurrection from the dead, I can just imagine in my mind's eye, Peter, James, and John elbowing each other and making eyes and just go, this is going to be good. Because Peter, James, and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Moses and Elijah and those boys know there's a resurrection. So they know the trap the Sadducees have brought is fixing a spring on them. So they're watching to see this all, how this all comes about. And Jesus Christ points them back to the words of Moses. That God spoke to Moses. He makes it clear from the truth of Scripture that Abraham, that Isaac, and that Jacob are not dead, but they're alive. And these guys, after death, passed into life because God is a God who rules people who are alive. He uses the Scripture to show them that they didn't understand the Scripture and that Jesus Christ knew exactly what the Scriptures meant. If you don't understand the Scriptures and you're missing the power of God, it's a good indication that you're headed towards error and deception if you're not already there. And that's exactly where the Sadducees were, and so Jesus wants to make it clear just how wrong they were by stating the right perspective. So immediately after he quotes Exodus chapter 3, he says, God is the God of the living, not the dead. Sadducees, you're in error, and here is the truth. You are wrong. Here's what is right. God is the God of the living. There most definitely will be a resurrection. This life is not all there is. It's just preparation for the next. Sadducees, however, not real open being told they're wrong. And they continue to stand against Jesus. But look at how this exchange ends in verse 33. And after hearing, the crowd was astonished at his teaching. I think it's incredibly interesting that the Sadducees' whole point in this this entire attempt to trap Jesus was to discredit him among the people so that Jesus would be appalling in the eyes of the people. But instead, Matthew makes it clear that in the eyes of the people, Jesus is astonishing. Not only did they not trap Him, not only did they not discredit Him, but in the people's eyes, He is even more amazing than ever before. Didn't work out so well for the Sadducees. And Matthew wants us to know 
that the religious leaders are not in control. That the people are not in control. Because in a matter of just a few days, two or three days, Jesus Christ is going to be crucified. And here we are at the point in time where everything's going to be changing so fast for Jesus to get to the cross. And Matthew has gone out of his way to demonstrate to us that everything the religious leaders are trying to do is failing in the opposite direction. They're trying to discredit Jesus so they can destroy Him. And guess what's happening? He's getting more credit. As if Matthew is saying to us, the people are not in control. The religious leaders are not in control. And from the first chapter of Matthew, Matthew has been telling us this has happened in the life of Jesus to fulfill what was written in the Word of God. Matthew wants us to know that God's in control. That it's God who is unfolding the work of His power so that the life of His Son might be crucified on the cross according to the Word of God spoken to His prophets. That the Son of God will be raised from the dead through the power of the Father so that the truth will be established so that anyone who trusts in Christ will be saved. Listen, you do not want to miss the power of God. And you don't want to misunderstand what He said. I want you to take note real quickly in verse 31. Look at verse 31 with me. Notice the words Jesus chose here. Now concerning the resurrection from the dead, have you not read what God spoke to you? Jesus just said to the the Sadducees, God spoke to you. These are men that have rejected Jesus. And Jesus just said, God spoke to you in what they've read. Who was God speaking to in Exodus chapter 3? Moses. Many, many, many years before the Sadducees were alive on the earth. What has Jesus just said happened when they read, when they read Exodus chapter 3. Jesus just told the Sadducees, when you read Exodus chapter 3, God spoke to you. That is no small matter. You want to understand the Scriptures? Then understand this book is not a book of historical material. It's not a book of religious regulations and rules. It's not a book simply about God. It's not a book about how to live the Christian life. This book is God speaking to you, personally revealing to you who He is and how He wants to save you. You don't want to miss the power of God. And you don't want to misunderstand what He said to you. I don't want to end up in the position of the Sadducees any more than you do. I don't want to hear Jesus Christ say to me, You are deceived. You've misunderstood the Scriptures. 
And you have missed and will miss the power of God in blessing forever. I don't want to hear those words. And so my question is, how did the Sadducees get into this position? I mean, Jesus Christ performed more miracles than they ever could have imagined. He said things that completely confound them all. They can't debate Him. They can't trap Him. They can't outsmart Him. They can't win against Him. How do they get in the place where they're totally unwilling to be wrong when it's so clear they are? Matthew's given us a picture of the Sadducees and the Pharisees from chapter 3 on. Chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 9, chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 21, chapter 22, and then in chapter 23 we're going to get, I mean, a complete rendition of their hypocrisy. Matthew wants us to see what the problem with the religious leaders are. I've alluded to it. I want to be very clear. The problem with the religious leaders is that they're unwilling to repent. They're unwilling to be wrong. They're unwilling for God to convict them. They're unwilling to see any need for forgiveness. They've compared themselves to others who are less than them and they've found satisfaction in their own righteousness and they're unwilling to hear God's Spirit, God's Son, say to them, you are a sinner and you need to repent. Their unwillingness to be repentant has caused them to be in a position of becoming deceived, not understanding the things that they knew and missing the power of God. If you and I want to hear what God has said to us and understand it and find the hope of the power of God, we must practice repentance. There is not a person in this place this morning who does not need to repent today. I'm not going to argue about the fact that some of us are in a deeper degree of sin. We're involved in a lot more sin than some, maybe some of the others of us. But if any of us are gauging our need for repentance based on our estimation of our sinfulness compared to someone else, you are deceived. And you do not understand the Scriptures. And you are in danger of missing the power of God in forgiveness of the sin that creates barriers between you and the Lord. The truth is that every one of us is missing the mark every single day. And we must be a people who practice repentance, who cry out to the Lord every day, Oh God, I want You to show me what's wrong, what does not reflect the character of Christ, and give me the privilege of coming before You and confessing my sin that You may wash my my sin away and make me as white as snow. Every single day we have need for repentance. And if you fail to practice that on a daily and regular basis because of your need for God's forgiveness in your life, because of your willingness to be wrong and your need for repentance, if you fail to practice that, I promise you you're on the same path as the Sadducees. And you do not want to end up in the demise of the religious leaders and hear Jesus say, you are deceived. You've misunderstood what you knew. And you will miss my power and blessing. It's much better to repent and practice repentance 
and add to your repentance the knowledge of God's word, which will bring forth an increasing hope of the demonstration of his power in eternity. Traps one and two for the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't work out so good. Sadducees were were not interested in following Jesus. They wanted to destroy him. They thought they could ignore him, pretend he didn't matter. Didn't work so good for them. If traps one and two tell you anything, I hope it tells you this. That it's not good to test Jesus in the wrong direction. Don't test him like the Sadducees, but I encourage you to test him. Test Jesus Christ by trusting Him in everything He says. Trust Him by following Him because of who He says He is. Test Him by committing to trust Him and follow Him no matter what. Put Him to the test by trusting Him. Following Him. Living with a heart of repentance. I mean, wouldn't you rather hear Jesus Christ say to you, you know the truth. You understand the Scriptures. And you will most definitely see and experience the amazing power of God forever. Then trust Him. Practice repentance.